Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives. Also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By Retro Cirque on YouTube. Home to the off-duty mime players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash podcast, including Beth Campbell, Mr. Cheeseball, Funny Music Man, Joss Hoskinson, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Michaud, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Jose Pasante, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Previously... On Telehell. Now, on to the next month in our channel surfing season, where... Oh, shoot. I, I totally forgot I left the door open from when Neil Weinstein came by to review Women in Prison a few weeks ago. Better shut it before any unwelcome pests come in. What the... Hey, I heard you were talking about Fox shows from 1987. Hope you've got time to take down one more. Crap... And now, Telehell continues. How did you get in here anyway? You left the door open. I know that. I mean, how were you able to get to hell? I didn't even have any special effects ready. Trust me, when you've interviewed as many people as I have over the years, including yourself, by the way, Mr. Episode 513, you tend to become pretty well connected. I dare ask who you could possibly know that could get you down here without risking a defamation lawsuit of some kind. But anyway, for the rest of the ladies and gentle demons out there who may not be familiar with who you are and what you do, please state your name and what you do for the record. I'm Ken Reed, Boston comedian and host of the long-running beloved podcast, TV Guidance Counselor. All right, good stuff. And now that you've introduced yourself... You said something about wanting to do a show from Fox's early years, too? Here in Boston, we had Fox 25. Uh, Fox here was always sort of the underdog station. It was always kind of the sleazy station. But in 87, it was very exciting because CBS was the old people's station. ABC seemed kind of, uh, I guess, I don't know, old-fashioned when I was seven. Uh, and NBC was sort of adult shows. Not old people like CBS, but like adult shows, like Cheers and St. Elsewhere. So Fox was almost like one step up from cartoons. Uh, and this is before like Nickelodeon was really doing a lot of like programming for kids. Like there, there wasn't a lot of like young people scripted content, if that makes sense. We had MTV, but it didn't, didn't really count. Well, we all have our fond memories. Unfortunately for me, my fond memories were burnt to a crisp a long time ago. Almost literally since the electric shock that brought me here fried out my medial temporal lobe. Now I sort of have to live in the now just to survive down here. Uh, uh, so, what did you have in mind? Uh, I know the first year of the Fox Network had this sort of sense that it was a dumping ground for the other network's table scraps, give or take a couple of exceptions to the rule. I hope you're not referring to Married with Children, Tracy Ullman, or 21 Jump Street as table scraps. No, those were the exceptions. Those were the shows that helped lay down the foundation for Fox's programming for years to come. 
I'm talking about the shows that hardly anybody else would be even willing to give the time of day to. Not necessarily because they're bad, but just meh enough so that the best reaction the shows would get is more of a, oh yeah, that was a thing. So, since you were kind enough to barge in here, which early Fox show would you like to take a look at? The sitcom that took place in real time? Laura's relatives put Ben to the test. What am I doing? Oh, you're doing fine. I'm having a breakdown. Laura, I think your boyfriend has a crush on me. Duet following Married with Children Sunday on Fox. The one where George C. Scott tries to be funny? There have been 38 presidents of the United States. For the first time, you'll get to know one personally. George C. Scott is Mr. President, premiering next Sunday on Fox. The low-budget but secretly awesome show about a werewolf? 100 years from now, what will the legends tell of today? Werewolf. Saturday night, the legend begins again. None of the above, actually. I was kind of hoping we could talk about the new adventures of Beans Baxter. The new what of who? Saturday on Fox. Oh, uh, Baxter. Benjamin Baxter <laughs> Jr. Uh, my friends call me Beans. Beans? Beans. 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 He's Beans Baxter, an ordinary teenager with an extraordinary job. That kid holds the fate of the world in his hands. Great. More surprises. Oh, you're going to go through the roof. Don't miss the new adventures of Beans Baxter. Saturday, only on Fox. And now... Hold on to your fireproof shoes. This is Telehell. I don't know. I mean, the show sounds kinda, sorta innocent enough. Have I mentioned that this show was created by a guy who directed an episode of Shasta McNasty? Let's do it. Cool. Is there anything you want me to do? Just chime in with some insight where needed, and we're good to go. In the meantime, we can't talk about this show without first talking about the guy who brought this and a number of other more memorable creations to life. Once upon a time, there was a young creative by the name of Savage Steve Holland. And yes, Savage is his actual first name. Originally studying to be an animator, Savage would go on to be the creative force behind a number of projects that were both pen and ink and flesh and bone. Three years after graduating from art school, Savage caught his first big break when he was tasked with a simple design job come up with an animated creature who would act as a combination antagonist and mascot for a new game show. The purpose of this creature was so that whenever contestants hit a specific space on the show's game board, this creature would come and take away players' money in a number of amusing ways. And thus, the Whammy from Press Your Luck was born. No Whammy, stop! Stop it, oh Whammy! And from the Whammy's birth, Savage was able to use that as a calling card to write, direct, and even animate sequences for not one, but two cult classic Cusack comedies. Say that three times fast. 1985's Better Off Dead. But remember one thing. I haven't even been to New York City. 
nobody was ever better off dead. The truth is I can outski you any day of the week. Oh, really? Yeah, you want to race? I'll take you on any day, sucker. And 1986's One Crazy Summer. Ha! I'm Ed Stewart, movie star. Also known as Bobcat Goldthwait. And me and my friends, John Cusack and Demi Moore. I hate boats. I'm not getting on any boat. I beg to differ. Just had one crazy summer. And not counting today's subject, Savage has pretty much gone on to have a fruitful career, did he not? He was an animator, I believe he went to Caltech, and when Press Your Luck was starting, they were looking for someone who could do animations in less than 24 frames per second, which is like the normal full animation. They wanted, I think, like eight frames per second animations, because it was TV and it was cheap. So he came up with the whammies. Those are all his uh, designs, he did all the drawings, he did all the voices, and then his first movie was the beloved Better Off Dead, again, animated opening credits. Uh, I do own some animation cells from that. And then he made One Crazy Summer, my beloved One Crazy Summer that they shot here in Massachusetts, which I actually went and watched them film some when I was a kid. My good friend Tony V is in that movie. He's the guy on the boat that gets a chili dog thrown at him and says, hey, you kids. Uh, And he actually, on my birthday one year on stage, we reenacted that scene. I had the script of One Crazy Summer. Also, I have uh, animation cells from One Crazy Summer. Then Savage Steve Holland did in 1987, uh, the same year he created the new adventures of Beans Baxter. He did a movie called How I Got Into College, which he did not write, but did direct. And uh, as of this day, that is his last film he directed. He kind of went right into television. He created the show Eek the Cat for Fox, an actual animated show later. He's just a really talented, uh, by all accounts, super nice guy who has a very specific aesthetic. Both movies were big enough hits that Savage suddenly became in demand at a number of production houses. But the one that came calling the loudest was... You guessed it. Fox. 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 As we've mentioned time and again, the Fox network in its infancy, not unlike the WB and UPN in their respective infancies, was eager to look for new shows to air on their newborn network. They already had Sunday nights all sewn up when the network debuted in 1987. But for the fall, the network decided to expand their programming to Saturday nights, a ploy that gave the network the temporary title of Fox Weekend Television, a nod to something that broadcasters in the UK had already been doing for decades. But I digress. One of the shows the network wanted to put on the new night of programming was a simple one from Savage. A young teen and his family moved to Washington, D.C. thanks to a job transfer picked up by his father. The family thinks that he works for the post office. But, as we later find out, he works for a secret, nondescript federal agency. As we'll also later find out, it is the teenage son who has to step in to fill in for his father to do all the secret agent stuff. All the while, he has to keep his newfound after-school activity a secret from his family and friends. And saying all this stuff out loud, I have a hunch that they tried to do this exact same storyline in other forms of media before, but I'm a little hazy as to where specifically. So this is a, this is a spy show parody, sure, but it was sort of new in that this was almost like Encyclopedia Brown spy show. So previously we had not really had the teenage James Bond type show uh, by that time. I think there was the kid from Uncle. No, there wasn't the kid from Uncle. There 
there was the man from uncle and the girl from uncle uh but in the 60s post james bond we got so many spy shows and especially on tv the aforementioned man from uncle uh even stuff like like batman and the green hornet kind of involved those sorts of tropes um but we had the saint was one um the avengers uh the the british avengers not the comic book avengers um we started getting things like Remo Williams and sort of these these book series that were um, very James Bond. And in the late 80s, we did get some sort of teen James Bonds. We got If Looks Could Kill, starring fellow Fox star uh, of Booker, Richard Grieco, uh, which I actually think is a pretty good movie. But this was sort of a first where we have this, this teenage James Bond type character. This also does, to be a little bit critical, um, when I had met Nick's on my show who did The Great Burn Notice, which is another spy show, uh, he made a very astute point that um, being an espionage is not a, a DNA characteristic. <laughs> for some reason, shows like Alias, like all these shows, they for, forever think like, oh, if I'm a spy, my child will be a spy. But that is the case in this, this TV show. But it's so broad and surreal, uh, it works for me. Of course, no matter how repetitious some things can be, there is a little hope in the originality. All that needs to be done is for the actors who appear in the show to make it their own. That is, perform in such a way that the product being presented will at least have the veneer of it being an original product. So with that, let's meet our cast. Starting with a kid tasked to play one Benjamin Baxter Jr., or for some reason, Beans for short, an up-and-coming child actor and expert Toyota restoration expert of Van Nuys, California. That's not a joke, by the way, he really does this now. Jonathan Ward. I hate to break it to you, but I care about other things. Like people's feelings. Being aware if something is upsetting them. That's what it's all about. Already making himself known for playing one of the kids on the original pre-Powell family era of Charles in Charge, Ward would pretty much spend the 80s and part of the 90s doing various roles in stage, screen, and TV. But about that second career he found for himself at the turn of the century? An interview with Haggerty.com shows that he found greater peace with vehicle restoration than ever appearing on camera, stating in part, quote, When you come right down to it, I think you're either born with or without an appreciation for details, and with or without a tendency to stop and touch and enjoy tactile values, architectural styles, or whatever it may be. I really don't know why, but I always grew up with a really open eye for this stuff and not only appreciated them, but also plotted on how to bring them all together in my core love of transportation." End quote. And you know what? Good for him for escaping the curses that most child actors tend to face. The rest of the cast include a fair share of industry vets, including Eleanor Donahue from Father Knows Best and future Fox cult classic Get a Life as Bean's mother, character actor Jerry Wasserman as the number two agent in the father's agency tasked with showing Beans the ropes, fellow 80s child actors Stuart Fratkin and Karen Mistel as Beans' friends, as well as child actor Scott Bremer as Beans' kid brother, Scooter. Oh, quick sidebar. Apparently in the casting process, Scooter was originally supposed to be played by a pre-SNL David Spade, but thanks to his agents at the time talking him out of it, it was not meant to be. Society's loss, I guess. After all, who needs an ensemble role on a network nobody's watching in 1987 when you can appear for about 17 seconds in Police Academy 4? Hey, Arnie, where are you going? Home. What are you doing? I'm gonna get the guys and hang out at the mall. Let's go. But I'm sure Spade is doing just fine in spite of that career move. 
moving on, you can't have a spy agency without any opposition to face. That opposition would come from an agency called the Underground Government Liberation Intergroup, or UGLI, ugly, for short. The frequent foils for this group that ain't got no alibi would be known as Mr. Sue and his second-in-command, Mr. Thornton, played by the late Taylor Negron, while Mr. Sue would be played by someone who can easily make lists of greatest TV fathers of all time, Mr. Kurtwood Smith. He's, kind of, he's an ass. Yeah. <laughs> and he's dumb. He's a... And now that we've introduced the cast, you've done over 500 interviews for your podcast. I'm pretty sure some of these people had to have been on your radar at some point. Beansbacks had some amazing, bizarre guest stars. Probably the most noteworthy of which was G. Gordon Liddy, an actual government murderer who's actually in a very funny episode play, playing an evil, uh, an evil government murderer. Um, but you had so many cool people in the show. Um, it was, and a lot of people would sort of play themselves as well. So like G. Gordon Liddy's kind of playing himself, which is strange. But you do have some stalwarts of Savage Steve Holland in there, like. Taylor Negron shows up in episodes. Um, you have uh, one of the uh, Rick, one of the villains is played by Rick Overton, who was a, who is a stand-up comic. He's still with us, uh, but he's showed up on TV all the time. Uh, he's playing like a Russian <laughs> on this show. It, I don't want to ruin it because there's a lot of guest stars that will shock you, uh, and, I, and people really should watch this. They're all up on YouTube. Put all of these together, and you've got a show with probably one of the more clumsy titles you could give a TV show. The New Adventures of Beans Baxter, which I would normally not complain about since quibbling on a TV show's title is largely pointless, but why... The New Adventures. Granted, it's a new TV show as it's debuting, but it would also imply that there were old adventures to begin with, featuring somebody else with the name Beans Baxter, but there isn't. Is there? Maybe his father had the nickname of Beans first, and Junior's adventures are considered the new ones? I guess that's a fair point, but I'm looking at the episode guide for this show, and... Nowhere does it indicate that the father's nickname was also Beans. Not as a spy name, not as a pet name, not even something his civilian buddies would call him. Ergo, why would they call these the new adventures when there were no adventures before this? Also, I think the new is kind of a parody because in the mid-80s, there was a slew of new shows. There was the new Adams Family, the new Monsters, the new Lassie, the new Leave it to Beaver, the new WKRP in Cincinnati, the new Gidget. Uh, there was new everything. Um, so I, I feel like this was a little bit possibly, um, and I may be giving Savage Steve Holland too much credit, but this was a little bit of a parody on that, sort of assuming we knew this character that was a new character. We didn't, it didn't exist before, Beans Baxter, but it was kind of like, well, you know, Beans Baxter, right? I hate it when the guests outsmart me. Well, it could be worse. I could have been here when you reviewed Shasta McNasty. Shasta. Shit. Uh-oh. Come on, narrator. Come back. Earth to narrator. Come in, narrator. I think I may have blown a fuse inside of him. Folks listening at home, give me a minute or two to snap him out of it. Hopefully we get to review the new adventures of Beans Baxter. 
after the break. What? What? Just don't say after the break. I say after the break. You're welcome. I just snapped you out of it. That's not the point. Just, just go to commercial, Leo. Listen, we gotta talk, man. A lot of people want to know what makes Bush's baked beans taste so darn good. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Some think it's our specially cured bacon, our fine brown sugar, or our delicate blend of spices. But the real reason our baked beans taste so good is the Bush Secret Family recipe, which I've shared with only one other soul, and he's not talking. Roll that beautiful bean footage. Uh-oh. Great-tasting Bush's baked beans. No one bakes them better. This week on Telehell's premium content of the damned. Hi, I'm one of the kids who was prosecuted for downloading music free off of the internet. And I'm here to announce in front of everyone, we're still going to download music free off of the internet. Up off the law and the law one. Up off the law and the law one. The only way to listen to Telehell's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast now at new low prices and now back to this week's torture july 18th 1987 the constitution of the united states celebrates its bicentennial nbc has a cockamamie plan to start prime time at 7:30 with a ludicrous syndication package and at 8.30, 7.30 Central. Instead of seeing spy action, we're treated to the sight of a blue cartoon bean minding its own business when suddenly an assassin's bullet tries to turn it into refried beans. And just before we condition ourselves into thinking that this is actually going to be a cartoon show, it wouldn't be a TV show from the 1980s without the show's title sequence pretty much giving away the ball game. Benjamin Baxter. I think he may be the best courier the network's ever had. Ever? Mailman. Family. Wife, two kids. They don't know a thing. <laughs> More cartoonishness from the Blue Bean when suddenly... We're thrust into the action as we see a smoking helicopter go down in flames already in progress. Full disclosure, we grabbed a copy of this episode from the Internet Archive, and it looks like somebody already edited the commercials out with a pair of safety scissors and library paste. So there's a good chance we may miss a detail or two on purpose here. Anyway, helicopter falls down and goes boom, while a second helicopter is chasing a man on horseback who brought it down. As it happens, it's Beans Baxter Sr., who leads the other chopper into a trap. The chopper backs off, and Beans Sr. does his postal duty and gets assigned a new duty at the same time. Don't worry, Ben. They won't get far. Sure, Jack, but it proves they know who I am. Of course, we're going to have to restation you. I understand, sir. I'm sorry, Ben. We're going to miss you. Thank you, sir. Ah, how does DC sit with you? Beans would love it. 
Well, you know me, Jack. I go wherever Uncle Sam needs me. Which, of course, he eventually would. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a show in the first place, as we now get to know Baxter the Jr. as he's exiting from a classic film festival with his girlfriend of the moment, totally unaware that his seemingly normal life is about to get upended. Carly, I remember being nervous about going to school here, you know, being the new kid in town and everything. And then everything started to go right, you know, I mean, I finally started to fit in, and, well, then I met you, and I've never been so happy before. I'm starting to feel like it's never going to end. Your dad's been transferred to Washington, D.C. We're moving. Isn't it wonderful? Eh, just as well. I can't imagine there being much of a reason to stay in Kansas anyway. So it's on to our nation's capital where we get to meet number two. And pause for obvious joke before we move on. Who does number two work for? That's right, buddy. You show that turn who's boss. Thank you for indulging me as we now go to an exposition dump from number two. And yes, that pun was intentional, too. Expert at all forms of military hardware and counter-espionage techniques. Class A at all forms of self-defense. Has an abnormal capacity for storing and assembling numerous top-priority on printable data. Mr. Sue and his devious terror network may be the most dangerous enemies of freedom on the planet Earth, but they are certainly not the brightest. There'll be a cold day in heck before Mr. Sue breaches this network's security. Take that Everybody got that? Good! Act two begins with the Baxters getting used to their new surroundings, as well as the unmistakable fact that in practically every form of media since the dawn of time, teens simply have to brood about things changing around them. It's just, Witch's Creek was so small. Even the dumbest things seem interesting. This is a big city. I'm gonna feel out of place. Being a man who whittles himself down to suit other people soon whittles himself away. Never deny who you are to fit other people. Be yourself. You're a good, smart kid. You're always a hit wherever you go. Translation, Papa Baxter is about to join the same club as Jonathan Kent, Bambi's mom, and Uncle Ben from Spider-Man just as they give poignant advice. And as the icing on the top, Bean Sr. gives Junior a pair of dog tags for good luck. Hey, Beans. For good luck. They deflected a hunk of metal that could have pierced my heart. You mean shrapnel from the war? Uh, no, actually, it was a file cabinet. We were moving over the, at the office. Uh, Lenny couldn't hold up his end. Yeah. And, well, well uh, see you at dinner, Pop. Good luck, son. Oh, he's going to die. I mean die. I mean, if there were gambling odds lesser than even money and they actually paid you to make the wager, take that bet. Odd. Uh, point of view of things, but whatever. Anyway, while Beans goes to school where he gets to perform his new kid in town routine all over again, Red Foreman and his henchmen... Uh, it's 1987. That has not happened yet. What do you mean? Listen, I've heard your show more than enough times to know that whenever a certain actor appears, you always seem to play an abundance of clips involving the actor's best-known work. Why not challenge yourself a little? Your point being? Well... Instead of playing a 70s show clip every time Kurtwood Smith is on screen, why not use something else he did? When did the show premiere again? July 18th, 1987. And when did Robocop premiere in movie theaters? July 17th, 1987. There you go. So for the rest of the review, let's just call him Clarence Boddicker instead of taking the easy way out. Okay, fair enough. Anyway... 
Clarence Boddicker and his henchmen follow the trail of Bean Sr. He's got to be taken alive, but it must appear that he's dead. That will prevent anyone interfering with our interrogation. With the secrets that man holds, we will become the most dangerous terrorist organization in the Western Hemisphere. Sweet Lucifer, they're going to become Fox News in 10 years. Also, not to ruin the previous joke that Ken made, but it turns out Bean Sr. isn't going to get killed off, per se. People just have to pretend that he is for the sake of there being a story to tell. But before we get to that, let's first see young Beans trying to fit in at a new school. I'm Kate Lisset. Hi. Hi. Are you an exchange student, or...? No, my father's an ambassador to the U.S., so now I go to school here. And you? Oh, uh, Baxter. Benjamin Baxter, <laughs> Jr. Uh, my friends call me Beans. How cute, Beans. <laughs> this is uh, Lars. His father is my father's bodyguard. I'm sure you'll be seeing more of him. And much to this show's credit, that kind of felt like a deleted scene from either one of Savage Steve Holland's previous movies, as we head back to the impending doom of Bean Sr. Okay, I've got it. You can destroy the disc. Season confirmed. Now remember, Agent Baxter, you will be delivering the SDI plutonium firing cap to Dr. Van Cleef in a month. At such time, please take extra care. The package is small, but extremely volatile. All right, thanks. You'll receive your instructions in the usual way. Now, story aside for a second, the guy giving Bean Sr. his marching orders sounds very familiar, but I'm a little hazy on who. To me, it sounds like a cross between Ed McMahon, John Vernon, and Richard Mulligan, but they never say who plays him in the opening or closing credits. Any ideas, Ken? I actually have no idea who this voice is. Um, it does sound like John Vernon to me, but I don't recall any instances where John Vernon worked with Savage Steve Holland. Um, he may have done a voice on Eek the Cat, because he was... John Vernon was doing animated voiceover at this time. He did the show Wildfire. Uh, if it's not anyone famous, then I don't know. But if it is a, a famous name, I'm going with Vernon. While we try to figure out the mystery voice, let's see how Clarence Boddicker's henchmen do in baking Bean Sr. They do so by mocking up a plastic skeleton with a half-melted mask of Ronald Reagan. It made sense at the time. But instead of seeing some spy stuff, we get to see more school stuff, as well as the introduction of our next character, Woodshop, who, based on his appearance, resembles every fast-talking best friend from every piece of team-related media since the dawn of time. Hi, I'm Woodshop. Oh, hi, Beans. Well, Beans, don't look now, but the hawk is circling for the kill. Well, what do you mean? Ignore her. If you ignore her, she'll want you. Just watch. Wait, what do you mean, want me? Like, like a guy? No, like an exploding frog. Of course, like a guy. You're the new kid. She's waiting for you to drool all over her. Don't, and you'll send her into a mass hysterical frenzy. And it's because of that antisocial behavior that we now have dating apps. Go figure. So I uh, hear your father is in the postal business of some kind. Well, my, my dad runs the postal service, and uh, his limo broke. His, his limo broke this morning, and he had one of his employees drop me off. As we whiplash ourselves back to being senior at his job. I hope everything works out with your son. 
if he only knew what his father does for a living. Thank you, ma'am. I'll be uh, delivering your package from Brian sometime later this month. I'll look forward to it, Mr. Baxter. Hold on. Aren't we forgetting something? What? The lady that Bean Senior is talking to? Doesn't she look a little bit familiar? Rewind the tape, please. Play it. I hope everything works out with your son. If he only knew what his father does for a living. It was you, Kristen, who shot Jr. Oh, shit. It's Mary. She shot Jr. Crosby. Well, at least this means we have our Dallas connection this season. But we're getting off topic, as we now whiplash ourselves back to school. Since there's been a lot of cheating going on in this class, each of you will be given his final assignment through the mail in two weeks. You will each be given a different assignment. This will assure me that the work is your own. You will not know what your assignment is until you've received it. As we whiplash again to being Senior's inevitable death-faking-slash-kidnapping. Then we whiplash again to... Enough with the whiplashes! Anymore, I'm gonna need a neck brace. That's not my fault. That's how the show's presented to us. Such as the pitfalls in most TV pilots. Too much pressure to try and introduce things in one fell swoop just in case the show doesn't get picked up to series. So much so that we get a two-fisted combination of world-building and exposition dumpage, leaving the viewers with very little chance to breathe. You know dumpage isn't a word, right? Oh, come on. I heard Jack Black say it once. No more car exhaust or ocean dumpage. But that's not the point. The big issue here is that this first episode is an hour long compared to all the remaining episodes that are your standard half hour. With all the extra time, there's extra opportunities to flesh out the story. There's no need to play thematic hopscotch. What's more, the tone of the story is whiplashing too, as we go from the intensity of Bean's senior getting kidnapped to the peaceful awkwardness of Bean's junior walking along with his girlfriend-to-be. Why not dovetail the two stories into one and let's just get this show started already? My dad a mailman? Don't be ridiculous. Well, there you go. Uh, Ken, why don't you talk about the next scene while I go put my foot in my mouth? No problem. Act three begins with Bean Senior trying to win a battle of wits with Clarence Boddicker. You're quite harmless in that chair, Mr. Baxter, I assure you. Oh, yeah? Find that funny? I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid ass that you'll shit snow for a year. We'll see just how funny you are, Mr. Baxter. And while the interrogation is taking place, Beans Jr. is dealing with the aftermath of watching Beans Sr. go boom. I never had a chance to tell him how proud I was of him. I'm sure he knows Beans. I'll never be half the guy Dad was. Why, Benjamin Jr., if your dad heard you talk like that, he'd clock you. I wish he was here to clock me. How about I'll clock you for him? With the acoustic guitar in the background, never before has metaphorical child abuse sounded so whimsical. But neither me or your brother are going to take orders from me until you finish high school, okay? Okay. 
But I'd give anything for a second chance. You have to tune in to another short-lived Fox sitcom for that. Spend a moment with the stars of Second Chance. I'm Keel Martin. And I'm Matthew L. Perry. I play Charles Russell. Wait a minute, I play Charles Russell. I know. I'm you, 24 years from now. Could we be any more off-topic as Beans Jr. goes back to school and we once again shift into 80s teen movie mode? Beans, I am wanting to tell you how sorry I am about your father. It must be awful for you. I don't know. I feel like such a jerk, you know, about, about everything. But I understand, Beans. There's a lot of pressure here to be someone. See, that's just it. My dad was someone, and I acted like he wasn't. I feel like I let him down somehow. But my mom's right, you know. I know he just wants me to go on and be the best that I can. And I plan to, you know, bounce back. All That's Missing is a soundtrack by Simple Minds, a consultancy credit from John Hughes, and a relocation from D.C. to Chicago, and we're back in business. As Bean Sr.'s former workplace is brought up to speed on his lack of whereabouts. Good God! They have Baxter? Do you know the damage they could do with his information? I don't know how ugly even discovered him, sir. There's a leak here somewhere. It's very perplexing. I've had everyone checked out. Has another courier been instructed until Baxter can be rescued? Uh, no, sir. Will Brian be delivering the cap to Professor Van Cleef? Not exactly, sir. You see, we can't find Brian. Oh, the guy in the mailbox, a.k.a. Brian, was the Richard Mulligan-sounding guy, and the head of the good agency is the one that sounded like John Vernon. Okay, that makes more sense. Based on how much this show likes to use its shadows on some of their protagonists, however, I legitimately thought they were supposed to be the same person. That still doesn't answer who exactly is playing what role, but at least it's slightly less confusing. Regardless, the mission must continue without being senior. What is a spy agency to do? We won't be able to tell him until Monday. I just hope he doesn't send his issuances before that. Who knows who might receive them? Cue the beginnings of hilarious circumstances in three, two... Lincoln and Rosewood, codename Homework, Ryan? Oh yeah, my economics assignment. Boy, Mr. Lucas sure takes this junk seriously. As Beans Jr. meets up with Brian, Brian wants to discuss the mission. Jr. wants to talk about his social life, and the comedic possibilities are about as endless as this sentence. Baxter, down here! Mr. Lucas, is that you? Baxter? Is that you? What's the code word? Uh, I am here about the homework. Baxter, where the heck have you been? The network's gonna be all over my back on Monday. Well, look, you'll never believe this, but Cake would say asked me out to dinner tonight. You know from class? She's like the most beautiful and popular girl in all of Georgetown High. Hey, look, Baxter, if you're into dating high school girls, that's your business. I just hand out the assignments. Pedophilia jokes, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, the Fox Network in its first few months did have a reputation for being a little outside the box, but man, is that a yellow flag. In the early years of Fox, they, they didn't set out to be the edgy network. I think they were just trying to air anything that stood out, and some of the things that stood out were shows that were rejected or pitches that were rejected by the other networks for being too edgy. They kind of played it safe, actually, the very first uh, couple years on a lot of the shows, and they threw a lot at the wall that didn't stick. So Fox, after that, tried to kind of reverse engineer um, that sort of edgy humor with the shows they made after that, before they started really leaning into being like an urban network. Um, when In Living Color did really well, and so they greenlit 
Living Single and Martin and all these other shows. Uh, and, and The Simpsons ended up being an edgy show as well, um, but is the longest running television show of all time. So it might be the most establishment show ever now. So it wasn't quite by design. Even Beans Baxter, which is a weird show. Um, Savage Steve Holland was kind of a known commodity. Like, Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer had developed massive cult audiences among teens, especially since they aired sort of nonstop on HBO. So even that wasn't that unusual uh, for them to take a risk on. Be that as it may, Beans now does what his father was supposed to do. All the while, still remaining completely oblivious as to what all of this is all about, even though a person with the most blunt of head trauma can still figure things out. Beans meets up with his connection and... Excuse me! You're not by any chance of Professor Van Cleef, are you? Yes! Who are you? Oh, my name's Beans Baxter. I got my homework assignment from school. I'm supposed to deliver this to you. Don't move! Stay right there! It's low-budget action sequence time! What? You're telling me that there's a 16-year-old kid running around downtown Washington, D.C. with a 12-megaton plutonium firing cap? And we gave it to him? It's an innocent enough mistake, sir. And he thinks it's a school project. As long as he doesn't drop it or or get it wet, we're fine. (laughs) And speaking of things that are low-budget, you can tell that this show was made on the cheap by the fact that 100% of the show's production was made entirely in the Hollywood of the Great White North, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Even if your show or movie's budget is sizable, you'll still go to Vancouver just to save a buck or two. Oh, so many Canadian shows. I mean, people just sort of got used to Canada representing New York City or America in these shows. So then later you get the X-Files and all the sort of sci-fi shows, and it, it's it's on. Like, Vancouver becomes Hollywood West. Uh, even Toronto doesn't have a ton of U.S. shows shot there. So it, it was a good cost-cutting measure at the time. Uh, even animated shows, and why did I pronounce it that way? Even animated shows were done up in Canada, Nelvana was a very, very massive Canadian animation studio. They did Care Bears, did a ton of Saturday morning cartoons. So Canada was uh, was our third world country of farming out television production. Which brings us to Act 4, and Beans accidentally trekking down the bad guys. What do you want? Um, I, uh, I got a package to deliver to you. It's my homework assignment. I thought this was going to be easy. Get out of here, you doped up punk. Doped up? I mean, he's probably out of breath from riding his bike a long way, and the bad guys have to maintain a layer of evil, but if you're going to insult a passerby, at least have the insults make sense. Show him how it's done, cast a veep. Yeah, well, next time, pack an espresso machine in your big fucking bitch bag. Oh my god. I love Italian, Jonah, but still unfortunately really dislike you. And in each of those, did he say, someone get this freak the fuck away from me? I don't have time to ignore you, Jonah. Gary, could you please ignore Jonah for me? Do I look like a pimp to you? You look exactly like a pimp. Damn, how I missed that show. Anyway, more exposition as it's revealed that one of the good guys has been working for Ugly this entire time. Remember the secretary at the beginning? Right in here. Me neither, but here she is anyway, showcasing the latest in torture techniques. Oh, look. Tim Tim fall down, go boom. Get bandaid from grandma. 
Baby pictures? Baby pictures. As punishment. I guess Betty White was right all along. In my day, seeing pictures of people's vacations was considered a punishment. As we are once again treated to the diet, one calorie version of Clarence Boddicker. Tonight, after I've moved Mr. Baxter, Professor Van Cleef will mysteriously disappear. Van Cleef go bye bye. <laughs> She's cruel. I've seen what you do to your own henchmen after burning up money. Can you fly, Bobby? Clarence, no! Meanwhile, the oblivious Beans is still treating a highly volatile package as though it's a homework assignment. So, Scooter, how do I work this thing? This is where you put the cheese. Voila! The world's first guinea cam. Oh, man, I hope this thing works. I gotta pick up cake at 8 o'clock. Hope she's not the punctual type. 8 o'clock? Oh, that means she'll be there around 9.30. Trust me, I know these things. As Beans' lady friend is waiting, the reminder of a quote from legendary movie producer Robert Evans, he who thinks he can read the mind of a woman is a man who knows nothing. Of course, that quote is more about intuition. Anybody who can rig a video camera and various other spy-related apparatus on top of a hamster is a diabolical genius. All right, we gotta find some keys. Wow, it's like some kind of party. What kind of assignment is this? I don't know, but it doesn't look good. It's something bad, I gotta get in there. So after watching a scene that makes me question the laws of plausibility, Beans goes and rescues the scientist, who herself is questioning the plausibility of the situation. Who are you? Uh, the name's Baxter. Beans, Baxter. Oh yeah, uh, they gave me an assignment. I'm, I'm supposed to give this to you? I don't know. Would you mind explaining to me what's going on? Because I'm missing the date of a lifetime. Listen, we've got to get out of here. There's been some kind of incredible bureaucratic screw-up. You're in grave danger. Um, so I'm right in assuming you're not from the schooling system. Barry, look, there's no time to explain now. We've got to run for it. Now, I'm not exactly well-versed in the world of espionage and... As is the case with most of the shows I review down here, I'm willing to suspend disbelief to the point of zero gravity. But there is no way, no way that an encounter like this can be this casual. Don't look at me. I just collect a bunch of TV guides. Fair enough. So Beans and the scientists try to sneak out, get chased by the henchmen, and finally figures out from the shooter of J.R. Ewing what the here is going on. Somehow you got your father's assignment to deliver this to me. Your father's a courier for the network. He's one of the top operatives in the nation. Beans, your father is a spy. My father is alive? Yes, I saw him tonight. But they took him away. They, they may try and kill him. I wish I could help him, but they know who I am here in Washington. I can never come back. They know you too, Beans. That's why you've got to come with me. I can't wait to tell my mom. You can't. It'll endanger your whole family. Your father couldn't, and you can't. Everybody got that? 
Good. Beans gets Kristen Shepard to the airport with plenty of time to do an homage to Casablanca and oh, now I see why they referenced it at the beginning. Look, I don't know much about being noble, but I know the problems of one high school kid don't add up to hella beans in this crazy world. It's high school life that made me deny my father. I got a chance to make it up to him. I'm gonna find him. You're just saying that to make me go. No, I'm saying it because it's true. Now go now, or you're gonna regret it. Maybe not today, not tomorrow, but... Goodbye, Beans. Good luck. After a somewhat questionable kiss and goodbye between a teenage boy and a middle-aged woman, the bad guys eventually catch up with the hill of beans in this crazy world. Hold it right there, kid! Not so fast. I never did like your cookies, Mrs. Kindwater. You'll never take me alive, copper. <laughs> Somebody clean up that mess. Did a, did a bunch of little kids just devour an old lady? Seems that way. And, and people are just okay with that. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm honestly not sure what to do with what I just saw. Don't worry. I do. Take it away, Mr. Heston. Silent breed is people! Anyway, let's stop the I's and cross the T's with the story. Now, if there's anything we can do to repay you for your help... I was wondering if I could stay on. You know, help out with the network? No, 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 I don't think so. It's ridiculous, no. Uh, excuse me, but Mr. Two, I really think you're overlooking something. I'm a kid. I mean, it's perfect cover. No one would ever suspect. Well, I guess you know too much about the network already, and our only option besides hiring you would be to terminate you. Okay, kid, you're on. But only until we find your father. Thank you, number two. You know, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Unfortunately, the friendship between Beans Baxter and Fox would prove to be short-lived, getting the axe after two nine-episode mini-seasons that ran consecutively from the summer to the fall of 1987. It being on Saturday nights, it was no match for NBC's comedy block, including The Golden Girls. In a final twist of full-circle irony, once Beans got beat, guess which show wound up being its replacement? Yep, the very show we just reviewed two episodes earlier, Women in Prison. With all of that in mind, in spite of its short run, this is gonna sound a little crazy, but I don't think this show deserves to be put down here. What? You mean sitting through all of this, you're not gonna even bother putting it in the nine circles? No, that's, that, that's not what I said. I mean, this show does still have its flaws. If TV sins on YouTube can talk shit about good TV shows, who's to say what's sacred in objectivity anymore? So with that, let's put the new adventures of Beans Baxter into the bean grinder that is our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, treachery. The easiest bell to ring is for the fact that this show put its main character in mortal danger on a weekly basis, so violence is a bit of a given. Otherwise, based on the pilot and all the other episodes I sat through, the show was fine. 
Not network television or even fledgling network fine, but I think in another place in time, this would have made a good little low-budget show for basic cable or even first-run syndication, both of which were still thriving markets in the late 1980s. And in spite of how ridiculous some of the stuff was in the show, there was nothing wrong with a little escapism. Of course, I still have to do my job, otherwise my soul gets permanently vaporized. And when a show is genuinely good on the surface, I have no choice but to dig around for more pedantic complaints on principle. For starters, I ask again why they would call this show the new adventures of Beans Baxter when the character itself is new to viewers. Maybe if they just dropped the word new or simply just called it Beans Baxter, period, it might have been a little less confusing to viewers, giving the show a very minor, rudimentary case of fraud. But that's not even the main issue. As Ken stated earlier, there have been several shows before and even since 1987 that clung tightly to the whole unlikely person has a big secret trope. And as original as they tried to be here, I think the show would have lasted a lot longer if Beans' family and friends were in on the secret too. Have them become spies themselves. But nope, we get a 1980s version of the secret double life of Henry Fife, marking the show for heresy towards existing spy stories. But other than that, the show seems pretty harmless enough to have deserved the two mini-seasons that it got. You're up, Ken. Honestly, I love this show. I feel like if it was a Nickelodeon show or even a Disney Channel show, um, not totally dissimilar in that sort of... Um, uh, Realistic or sort of surreal magical realism, I think you'd call it, or, or the new adventures of Pete. Uh, new adventures, the adventures of Pete and Pete, not the new adventures of Pete and Pete. There's still time for that. Uh, adventures of Pete and Pete, these sort of Nickelodeon live-action shows we would get in the mid '90s and early 2000s. So I, you know, I think if anything, this show is sort of a decade ahead of its time. Uh, it was not a show adults enjoyed. It was probably a little bit too adult for kids and was on probably a little bit too late. It was on a weird time on Saturday nights. Like, I think this show really had a chance at being something more than it was uh, or more beloved if it had been at a different network and, you know, at a different time. The New Adventures of Beans Baxter earns three out of nine circles of telehell. But once again, I can't stress enough that this was a decent show, just the victim of bad luck. If it aired on any other night of the week on a completely different network altogether, it might have stood a chance. But it aired on a network that was just starting out and also trying to find its identity. And perhaps most importantly, the show wasn't so bad or detrimental that it wound up ruining any careers. Uh, granted, you don't hear much from the child actors who appeared in the show anymore, but at least Kurtwood Smith wound up with a storied career. And as I also mentioned, Savage Steve Holland would go on to do many memorable shows, including creating Eat the Cat, a directing dozens of episodes of Disney and Nickelodeon sitcoms and TV movies. And not to rub salt in the wound, he did direct an episode of Shasta McNasty. because it's the only way I could call on my ride to get here. Your ride? Oh, come on! First the Happy Days guy gets a chopper, now you? I'd like to know why these helicopters keep showing up and why I can't fly out on one of them. Okay, don't look at me. It's your show. 
Give me a buzz the next time you want to talk about a back issue of TV Guide. As for me, I'm out of here. You know what? Maybe he's right. It is my show. I don't have to stay cooped up down here all the time. I've been here four years. I think I can paint outside the lines one time, right? I mean, surely I've earned myself enough personal time after all this time, right? Let me check my ADP page. Yes, Hell does use ADP for its payroll. You figure out why. According to my payroll page, I have made next to nothing. Typical. And also, one hour of personal time over the past four years. Oh, thanks, Satan. We're a non-union underworld. Let me just clear it with the people downstairs. me. Uh, I'd like to use my one hour of personal time for next week's show. Have you ever used personal time before? At regular workplaces, sure. Just not here. I assume there's a demonic catch of some kind? Eh, nothing really. Just be sure you come back to hell before your time has been used up. Otherwise, your soul will be permanently vaporized. Do you have a human form prepared for when you go to the surface? Just a generic one. I'm hoping to blend in with the rest of the people once I get there. Blend in, eh? If you don't mind my asking, where will you be going during your personal time? <sighs> Somewhere where I haven't been in a long time. Next time on Telehell, live, or at least pre-recorded, from New York, it's Saturday night on a Sunday. What do you mean? I mean, you're obviously in pain. I think you got some weird radiation poisoning. Please, you should really have that head looked at. Buzz, 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 buzz. Your puny words are just buzzing around in Brainiac's head. And it's very painful. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. We had a lot of fun this hour, and all kidding aside, we do enjoy it whenever we have a guest down here. I am very thankful that Ken Reed, aka TV Guidance Counselor, decided to do this show. You can listen to him at tvguidancecounselor.com or wherever you find good podcasts. Part of the Devil's Secretary was played by Joan Bishop. And now, here are the rest of the credits. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. 
On social media, Twitter and Facebook at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash Telehell Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others just by Googling Telehell. 